The following message is made available by Truth For Life. For more information, visit us online at truthforlife.org. If you have a Bible, I invite you to uh, open with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. And while you find your place there, let me just express uh, how honored I am to be here, to uh, be at Basics. I was canceled on two years in a row. Uh, as everything was, and it's, uh, it's wonderful to be here. I told uh, Pastor Beck that, that I would travel to uh, Cleveland just to wash his car. I, I respect him so much, and I did mean that, but I didn't think he would take me seriously. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but next time I come, I think I'll bring uh, some cleaning supplies uh, up here. Um, Paul, in this text, uh, in 2 Corinthians 1, 12 and following, is revealing his, really his philosophy of ministry in a real-life biographical way. It's not presented in kind of a glossy brochure or a slick website, but in a very transparent and vulnerable epistle written in the context of church conflict and in personal affliction. Paul is responding to problems, and I'm sure one or two of you can relate to that. And what we see as Paul is addressing this and addressing his situation is that we have some basics that we should keep pursuing in times of conflict and in times of criticism. And so allow me to read it for us, and then we'll have a look at it. Verse 12, Paul says, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who established us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in the faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you, For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know of the abundant love that I have for you. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word today. What a joy it is to sing uh, with your servants today. 
uh, sing your praises. And I pray that these who are in front of me who feed the flock of God would this afternoon be fed themselves, that you would nourish and strengthen us that we may be faithful until the end. Open up our eyes to behold wonderful things here from your word. In Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Well, we've all experienced the change of plans, haven't we, in the last two years? We've had a number of things canceled. It's already been mentioned, this particular conference. Next week, I travel to Turkey, and the week after that, I travel to Spain. I never would have structured my schedule like this, but it's the result of all the reschedulings uh, that have happened in light of these past uh, couple of years. And in this passage, Paul is discussing his change in travel plans. It seems like a rather mundane topic to pick to open up a conference. But as Paul is addressing his change in travel plans, he drops some rich gospel truths in the midst of it, and he provides some very important characteristics about faithfulness in ministry or ministerial integrity. Now, to put it in in its context, Paul is being attacked not for just one or two reasons, but for a number of reasons. They're saying, for example, that Paul's appearance is weak. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, they say, Paul, when you write letters, you look very impressive. But when you show up, uh, there's not much to you, right? You don't look really like LeBron James. You're you're more like a Costanza uh, sort of figure. (laughs) They're, They're saying that Paul suffers too much to be an apostle. They're questioning his motives. They're saying that he's fickle, that he said he's going to do this and he's going to visit then, and he didn't do that. They're saying, surprisingly to us, that his speaking ability wasn't that great, that he wasn't successful. In chapter 3, they, they criticize him because he has no reference letters, which are very important in antiquity. They don't like how he handles money. They don't like his ministry methodology. Other than that, everything was cool. Right? So this great missionary church planter is being criticized, and in this letter he decides to defend his ministry. He decides to defend his integrity. Now, how many of you know that trying to defend yourself is very awkward? And sometimes we'd rather just bear the criticism and fall on the sword and be done with it. But in this particular case, Paul decides to defend his ministry, to defend himself, precisely because the gospel was at stake. It really wasn't about him. In fact, he kind of defends himself and tries to use language like he's not defending himself. And that's why the letter is quite interesting as as you follow Paul uh, throughout this letter. And the reason he wants them to side with him is because he doesn't want these young Christians to be swept away by false teachers. These false teachers that he sarcastically calls super apostles. And so Paul will not give up on these cantankerous Corinthians. And so he makes statements throughout the letter so we do not lose heart. We keep persevering by God's grace. And by the time he writes 2 Corinthians, he's had a number of interactions with the church, including a painful visit and a painful letter. But at the end of the letter, he makes a really wonderful statement about what it means to pour out ourselves in ministry when he writes in uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 15, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. What a wonderful statement. So 2 Corinthians reminds us that ministry in every generation is challenging. In every context, it's challenging. I'm sure if we just went around the room, we would hear stories today of spiritual warfare, of arguments and conflict, of people leaving the church or people being absent from the church for extended periods of time, of leaders dealing with anxiety, with depression, with burnout, 
of having to have a bunch of conversations with people that we don't want to have. (laughs) And this is why when I was in seminary, we had a course that was required called Interpersonal Relationship Skills, which ironically now I've been told is offered online. (laughs) But I think it was the right idea to offer the course and require the course. Um, And this is a very valuable letter to us. In fact, Dane Ortland has said in his commentary that 2 Corinthians could be understood as a pastoral epistle. Even though we don't technically classify it as a pastoral epistle, it is one of those letters where Paul just opens up his heart. And you see his motives, you see his ministry methodology, and you see him dealing with real life struggle. And as we identify with Paul in his struggle, we find great encouragement in our own struggles. And we find great encouragement in the fact that the theme of 2 Corinthians is God's strength in human weakness. That God continues to use weak and afflicted ministers for his glory. He continues to use clay pots by his grace. And so what I would like to do this afternoon is to simply outline for you some some basics for maintaining integrity in ministry in a context of conflict, in a context of criticism. What do we do when we're in those particular contexts? And I only have seven uh, characteristics, so let's go for it. Number one, grace-enabled godliness. What do we do when we're facing this kind of challenge in, in the church? Paul, in verse 12, begins to say that his, his conscience is clean. He begins by saying, for our boast is this, And he introduces this term boasting here, which is used more uh, in 2 Corinthians than any other book. And I'm sure many of you are aware of the context of Corinth, but this was a place where a lot of people were were very uh, braggadocious. They they loved their speakers. Uh, They had kind of what you might liken to an ancient form of battle rapping, uh, like a Cool Mo D and LL Cool J uh, going at it, where, where there were a lot of impressive speakers put on display. And Paul knows that our boast is only in the Lord. And here he's saying that our boast is in God's grace right? That we've operated not in earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. And so he attributes his pure motives to God's grace, not his own power, so that God gets the glory. It's a grace-enabled godliness. It's a grace-enabled conscience that's clean, right? That he says, my conscience is clear. This is the testimony of our conscience. And I think this is important because what Paul is saying in a roundabout way here is that even though their assessment of him was hurtful, He says that my conscience was clean before God. And that's why later in the letter he says, I should have been commended by you. See, a clear conscience is foundational in ministry. A clear conscience doesn't mean sinless. It means that we're living in the light. It means that when we're aware of sin, we repent of sin. Repentance is not like college basketball, one and done. But it's the ongoing life of a Christian and this idea of a clean conscience appears throughout the pastoral epistles, like in 2 Timothy 1.3. I thank my God, whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience. And the reason this is practically important for us who are in ministry is that we cannot always make people happy in ministry. So what do we do? We live and minister with a clean conscience before the Lord, as best we can, right? Because if we don't please Jesus, it doesn't matter who we please. That's why Paul later says in the letter, we make it our aim to please him. So we know that sometimes our most sincere efforts will be interpreted negatively. It happened to Jesus. It happened to Paul. 
and it will happen to all of Christ's servants. So let's determine to minister with a clean conscience. Pursue, as Paul says here, simplicity or holiness and godly sincerity to have a single-minded commitment so that Christ is glorified and that everything we do is, is for the church's good. No duplicity, no shadiness, but everything in the light, operating not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. We're thinking through all of our decisions for spiritual reasons, not just that which is pragmatic or convenient, not things that are whimsical, but things that are well thought out, that it may bless God's church and bring Him glory. So may all of us pursue a holy life. We cannot all be gifted in the same way, can we? But we can all pursue godliness. And here's the great benefit of godliness. Godliness not only honors God, but it makes up for a lot of gaps in your gifting. You show me a godly leader, I'll show you one who's making an impact. And that's why McShane put it well when he said, it is not great talents that God so much blesses as it is great likeness to Jesus. So how do we operate in a context of conflict and controversy? Well, let's do this first. Let's pursue grace and naval godliness. Secondly, notice what Paul also emphasizes, the second mark, is an eschatological vision. We have to take the long view when we're having short-term drama. And he says in verse 13, you note a bit of his patience when he says, um, you, you partially understand what I say to you. I want you to fully understand it. And then he says, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us and we will boast of you. This church that had caused Paul so much grief, he says, on, on the last day, I'm going to boast in you and you're going to boast in me. Now that's remarkable, isn't it? When we're, forced with, when we're faced with conflict and drama and trial, we need to go to the eschaton. We know that one day all things will be made clear. Believers will boast in each other. Paul says, you, I will boast in you. I've invested in you. And all of us one day will, will enjoy that experience. And so when Paul writes, it's interesting how the day of the Lord never seems to far stray from his mind. And here it is the, in the same way. That on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, you will boast of us and we will boast of you. When he wrote to the Philippian church, he said, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So we minister today in light of that day. Which is like Luther, uh, when he put it well, when he said, there are two days on my calendar, this day and that day. We minister every day in light of the final day. And because the final day is coming, everything that we do matters. And spending ourselves for the good of others is worth it because Jesus Christ is worth it. It will be a Christ-centered boasting on that day. And it will be an others' folks' boasting. We will be in the presence of Jesus, and we will be filled with joy as we see other believers that we've invested in. And so that's an important motivation for us to keep in our hearts, isn't it? Our goal is, uh, today, our hope that today, is, is not to return to pre-COVID conditions, but to return to the, or to, to experience the Perusia conditions. <laughs> Even if we return to pre-COVID, people are still going to die. We're still going to have conflict. We minister in light of the Perusia. We minister in light of that day. And dwelling on eschatology is not something that should make us, you know, turn into should not produce radical fanaticism, 
but it should produce everyday faithfulness. And so let's think on that day. Let's minister in light of that day. Someone once asked the great Richard Baxter, how have you managed to be so productive in all of your years, given all of your suffering? He lived to his 76, and he responded, I think about heaven for 30 minutes a day. Well, that's good counsel. Thirdly, notice what else marks, marks Paul's ministry, truthful speech. He begins to talk about what happened with his lack of showing up, as he said. And it's hard to somewhat follow unless you've been teaching 2 Corinthians, but I'll try to summarize it uh, briefly. Originally, in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul intended to go from Ephesus to Macedonia, Corinth, and then Jerusalem. And he was going to go to Macedonia from Ephesus down to Corinth, and he was going to stay for the whole winter. So they're very excited that the apostle was going to be with him for the winter. But then Paul revised his plan in light of change of circumstances, and he decided not to stay for the winter visit, but actually make two visits, which is what he mentions here in verse 15, a second experience of grace. He decided to go to Ephesus, Corinth, up to Macedonia, back to Corinth, and then to Jerusalem. But then Paul got a negative report about the church, and he changed his mind, and instead went straight from Ephesus to Corinth, making an emergency visit, which he labels uh, in, in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, a painful visit. And that visit did not go well. He was attacked publicly, the church, by these super apostles. They did not defend the apostle, and he left wounded and later wrote them a painful letter. And so what's happened is they didn't get the long visit, they didn't get the double visit, they got a painful visit. <laughs> they didn't get plan A. <laughs> they didn't get plan B. They got C. They didn't get 2020. They didn't get 2021. They got 2022. And, and these change in plans caused a rift in the fellowship. It caused people, believe it or not, to spread rumors about their leader. That he's fickle. That he's untrustworthy. And Paul is trying to say in verses 17 and 18... That really was my intention. When I wrote those things, that's what I wanted to do. My yes really was my yes, and my no really was my no. I'm not fickle. What happened is what has happened to us many times in our lives, right? Changes in circumstances cause us to change our plans. I had such wonderful plans in 2020. I'm sure you did too. I had opening day tickets to watch the Washington Nationals tickets to watch Hamilton. I was going to go on my first ever sabbatical. Still waiting on that. I've heard of those things, you know. Um, But something happened, a global pandemic, and plans change. Well, Paul was hindered, and one of the reasons he didn't show up yet, he says down in chapter, verse 23, and in chapter 2, verse 1, is that he's really wanting to give them some space to repent. He views this as an act of mercy that he hasn't returned yet. He's about to return to Corinth, but he wants to give them some time to, to, to think and to hopefully repent. And he's urging them in this letter to, to do that. He's kind of like the parent that's saying, don't make me come up there, right? Giving them some, some space. And so the point is, let our yes be yes and our no be no, even though we know some circumstances are going to change. That doesn't make us fickle or untrustworthy. It just means we live in a world that's somewhat unpredictable. <laughs> just read Ecclesiastes. And you see that all over the place, don't you? Well, that's the third mark. Number four, a faithful ministry is marked by Christ-centered proclamation. 
above all things, a faithful minister proclaims Christ. And here is what you might call one of the best Jesus jukes in the New Testament. You guys know what a Jesus juke is? When somebody's talking about something mundane and then they just flip it immediately to, to talk about Jesus. Here Paul's just talking about his travel plans and it leads him in this little digression to have a few reflections on Christ. It's an inspired Jesus juke and it's a very important one. As Paul lays out for us what's at the heart of our preaching. He says in verse 18, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. So he he is tying his integrity to God's integrity. He's saying that God's faithfulness explains his integrity, that God is sustaining him, that God is faithful. And the first place Paul goes in order to illustrate the fact that God is faithful is in the fact that Jesus, the Messiah has come fulfilling the promises of God. Lest we ever wonder if God is faithful, we only need to look to the ministry and work of Jesus Christ. And that's a great ministry to our souls today. If you find yourself in a wounded place, in a sorrowful place, you need to know something today of the faithfulness of God, that he is faithful. And you can be assured of his faithfulness. You can sing great is his faithfulness because his faithfulness has been put on display in the coming of Jesus Christ. And so he says here that all of the promises of God find their yes in him. And Paul seems to also be saying in this little argument something from the greater to the lesser to the Corinthians. If I did the the big thing, the great thing in proclaiming Christ to you, then surely you can trust me on this little thing like my travel plans. Surely you can give me the benefit of the doubt since I was the one who brought the gospel to you and I preached Christ to you. And what is it that Paul says here in verse 19? Well, he says something that's very important about our understanding of scripture, right? that all of the promises of God find their yes in him. As he says in verse 19, for the son of God, Jesus Christ, whom he proclaimed among you, not just Paul, but Silvanus and Timothy and I was not yes and no, but in him, it is always yes. The son of God, he says, that's who I proclaimed. This highlights how Christ fulfilled the promise to David. He's the fulfillment of the great king that was announced who would come He is saying here, my preaching is not wishy-washy. It is clear. It's centered on the Son of God. And brothers and sisters, we all know this, but it's good to just join our hearts to recognize it in this big room today that Jesus is God's big yes to the world. Many people imagine Christianity to be a no religion. It's all you invite people to Christianity and they think it's all the stuff they have to say no to now. And there are a bunch of no's, to be sure. But Christianity is a yes religion. Everything we've ever needed is found in this one. Jesus is not the world's maybe. He's the world's yes. His coming had a purpose, to seek and save the lost, to reconcile sinners to God. He came with a clear plan, and Jesus fulfilled it. He's the yes. If you're a baseball fan, you've probably heard of the Chicago White Sox announcer, the Hawk. Every time they hit a home run, he says, you can put it on the board. Yes. And Paul's saying, you can put this on the board. Jesus Christ is the long expected king. All of the anticipations and predictions of the Messiah have been decisively and irreversibly declared to be yes in Christ. Jesus is the apex of the Old Testament. 
There is a messianic wind that blows across the pages of the God-breathed Bible. Types, shadows, echoes, allusions, predictions, and promises. Jesus is God's big yes to the ancient promise that one is going to come to crush the head of the serpent. Jesus is that great ark who provides salvation to all who run to him. Jesus is God's yes to the promise of Abraham that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Jesus is the greater Melchizedek, the mysterious figure who was both king and priest, who came with gifts of bread and wine, who received an offering from Moses. Jesus is the beloved son who was not spared like Isaac was, but was delivered up for our salvation. Jesus is the yes to the promise that the scepter would not depart from Judah. Jesus is a greater disruptive baby like Moses, a greater mediator and shepherd who brought a greater deliverance than that of the Exodus. Jesus Christ, Paul says, our Passover lamb has been slain. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the true manna from heaven that satisfies our hungry hearts, the water from the rock that saves us, the fulfillment of the law, the true Sabbath rest. He is the ultimate temple and tabernacle who gives us access to God. He's the better Joshua who has taken us to a better promised land, a new heaven and a new earth. He's a greater Boaz who feeds the hungry at his table and brings us into his family. He's the greater Elijah and Elisha who can raise the dead with simply the the power of his word. He's God's big yes, that one from David's line would reign forever. He is the royal king declared in the Psalms, whose end will be endless and boundless and gracious. He's Micah's shepherd who will come from Bethlehem, whose coming forth is from the ancient of days, and he shall be our peace. Isaiah's Emmanuel, Isaiah's chosen servant, who will not break the bruised reed, but will restore it so that it flourishes and bears fruit. Isaiah's suffering servant who was wounded for our transgressions. He's Daniel's stone fashioned out of nowhere who will conquer all the empires whose glory will fill the earth. Jesus is the great bright and morning star who will come again to dispel the darkness, who will wipe away tears off our face and give us a new body fitted for a new creation. All of the promises of God find their yes in him. And to read the Old Testament without having Christ's ministry in view is like reading some novel, like a mystery novel, without the final chapter. (laughs) You would get to the end and be like, where's my last chapter? How does this end? You would call the publisher. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. And he, my friends, is the only yes. You can't find salvation in Jesus today and someone else tomorrow. All other potential saviors are no's. And he is the answer to life's ultimate questions. Forgiveness of sins, yes. Right standing with God, yes. Reconciliation to God, yes. Freedom from bondage and guilt, yes. Satisfaction of the soul, yes. Eternal life, yes. A glorious inheritance, yes. Dwelling with God in a new creation with no more tears and fears and sickness and death, yes. And if you're not a Christian, will he have you? Yes, Jesus is the Father's yes to every promise, every need, every hope. All of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. All of them. What God pledged, Christ fulfilled. What God said he would do, Christ did it. Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Savior, is the ultimate proof, Paul says, that God is faithful. Lest we ever doubt it. And if you find yourself in a season of grief or hurt today, let this text strengthen you today. Our God is faithful. 
And Jesus is the big yes for us. And so let's linger over these promises. Let's, let's preach these promises. Let's savor these promises in season and out of season. We stand, brothers, in this great tradition. What a privilege. Paul says it was me, it was Silvanus, it was Timothy, it was the guys at basics. This is what we do. In season, out of season, locked down, locked up, preaching outside, inside, <laughs> him we proclaim. And so Paul says in verse 20, we utter our amen. A celebratory response to declare as a people who have received this salvation, amen. Let the amen sound from his people again. Well, I'm out of time, but let me just outline the last three points. Number five, (laughs) spiritual authenticity. Paul says in verses 21 to 22, something about the spirit. And it's interesting that he turns from the past promises that God has made to the present, the spirit's work within believers to the future that the spirit is guaranteeing this glory to come. And this is also, you should note, the Trinitarian nature of this passage. The Father's promises, the Son's accomplishments, and the Spirit's application of them. And so Paul is saying in a sense here, I'm the real deal. You can trust me because God's Spirit is in me. And you should also reject those whack teachers who preach a different gospel, who have a different spirit. The reason we're together, Corinthian church, is we have the same spirit. And that's what he says uh, there in verse 21, that God has established us with you in Christ and has anointed us. There's a spiritual unity among us. And he's put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. He establishes us. He anoints us. He seals us. And he gives us his spirit as a guarantee of glory to come. So that leads us to number six. A faithful ministry is also marked by joy-focused service. Paul says in verses 23 down to 2-3, here is a great goal for ministry. Ministering for the joy of others. Notice what, what he says in verse 24. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Now what an attitude Paul's possessing to a very difficult church. I'm working with you for your joy. There are 10,000 things we could do for someone, but here is a crystal clear text about what we are to do in ministry. We work with others for their joy in Christ. What do you want to see in others? What do you want to see in your kids, in your small group, in your church? Here it is, that they may abound with joy in Christ. And if we're going to, to have that aim, one of the things we have to do is cultivate joy in our own hearts, right? Right? This is George Mueller who said, my first business every day is to get my heart happy in the Lord. And it's out of that happy heart that we labor to help others find their happiness in Christ. But notice how he goes about doing it. It's it's not by dominating the Corinthians. It's by cooperating with the Corinthians. We work with you for your joy. He's not going to browbeat the Corinthians. And if you're a leader, notice you have responsibility here to work. We work with you. But there's also your liberty. They have to grow. There's responsibility on their part. This is work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's saying in a sense here, I don't determine your spiritual growth. 
I teach, I counsel, I guide, I encourage, I give a godly example. But you need to learn and grow on your own. We work with you for your joy. So, Paul leaves us then finally with number seven, if you'll drop down to verse four. Heartfelt love. He said that a faithful ministry in the midst of conflict should be marked by grace-enabled godliness, an eschatological vision, truthful speech, Christ-centered proclamation, spiritual authenticity, joy-focused service, and finally, heartfelt love. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and of anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Paul's correspondence with this Corinthian church didn't come from a place of hostility, but from a place of love. It was very painful for Paul to address these issues. And here you see something of his heart. And we need to share not only Paul's theology, but Paul's tears. We're not short today on temper tantrums, but we are short on pastoral tears. It would be easy for Paul simply to cancel the Corinthians. And that'd be a hashtag today, wouldn't it? He founded the church. He preached. People believed. He displayed signs of power. He endured afflictions. And yet they're being duped by false teachers. They didn't defend their apostle publicly. Instead, they've criticized him. And to this church, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 13. Love bears all things. That's written in real life ministry. And look at this bundle of terms. This is, this is ministry. Anguish, tears, pain, suffering. But also notice what goes with it. Love, joy, rejoicing. True love bleeds. We see that in the suffering Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. For the joy set before him endured the cross, despising his shame. And as he was in anguish and in pain and in tears, he was displaying unspeakable love for the world for our joy in God. And so praise be to our Savior who has reconciled us to God through His atoning work and has given us His Spirit as a down payment of the glory that is to come. And let's minister by God's grace to His glory as we pursue these things. This is a wonderful profile that Paul gives us, I think, of a faithful and afflicted minister. As he writes later, afflicted in every way but not crushed. Perplexed but not driven to despair. Persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. A minister who experienced the all sufficient grace of Jesus Christ, God's big yes to the world. Good news today that God still uses afflicted servants. He continues to use wounded healers just like us who point people to the Savior. So be encouraged today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word for how it instructs us, how it inspires us, how it points us to our Savior. And I pray for my brothers and sisters who are here. I pray that you would strengthen them, build them up in their most holy faith. And for those who come into this conference uh, beaten up, wounded, uh, hurt, in sorrow, I pray that this conference would be a great means of encouragement to them. Would you strengthen them? by your grace, for your glory, for the good of your church. In Christ's good name we pray. And everybody said, amen.
You've been listening to a message from Truth For Life. You're welcome to pass this sermon along to others, but please don't charge for it or alter it in any way without written permission from Truth For Life. This content has been provided to you free of charge by the generous supporters of Truth For Life. For additional information about how you can support Truth For Life, please visit us online at truthforlife.org. There you'll find free message downloads from Alistair Begg, as well as links to our podcast, mobile apps, and other resources to help you grow in your Christian faith. Again, the website is truthforlife.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter to stay in touch with Truth For Life and Alistair Begg. Truth For Life, where the learning is for living.